0: Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, now as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit. Soften our hearts so that we may delight in your presence. Sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth. And shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There are many things in life, aren't there, where it really pays to be ready. It might be preparing for an exam where we need to revise and take in as much information as we can so that we go in well prepared and ready to face the questions. But it's true in many walks of life, preparing for a marathon, doing all the necessary training so that we're ready to run, preparing your car for its MOT, making sure that everything's all right so that it should pass, or maybe you spend a lot of time tidying and cleaning your house before a guest comes over so that you make that good impression. You maybe spend a lot of time getting yourself ready so that you look well for that special someone. In life there are all kinds of situations where it pays to be ready and you'll certainly know that if you've ever been caught off guard and not ready. Maybe you forgot about the MOT appointment, so it ended up you didn't have time to get the car checked over, so you just have to sweat it out in the MOT center, hearing them banging at it and whatever they're doing. Or maybe it even failed because you don't have it ready. Or shock horror, the minister comes round, unexpected, and the house is a mess. And your stress levels go up. Now, nobody in Ravenhill has anything to worry about, just have to say that. You all seem to have very, very clean and tidy houses. Maybe you've had that experience. You open up the exam paper and you realize, oh, no, I haven't really prepared for this properly. And life has a habit of catching us off guard. Ill health, even tragedy, death. Well, there's never a good time for those things to happen, but we often find ourselves not ready. If we'd known, we could have made preparations. But sometimes life just doesn't work like that because we don't know when these things are going to come our way. And it's almost impossible to be ready for everything life can throw at us all of the time. But something the Bible tells us to be ready for, and in fact it tells us we can be ready for, is the return of Jesus. Jesus tells us himself in Matthew chapter 24, he says, so also you must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you don't expect him. And we've been working our way through 1 Thessalonians together. Paul's been encouraging and teaching these Christians in all kinds of ways, but this week we see that he encourages the Christians at Thessalonica, and therefore us as well, to be ready for Jesus to return And we might be quite familiar with words like this, maybe from a street preacher who's trying to tell people that Jesus is coming back soon, and you've got to get yourself ready. We might even be familiar hearing it from the pulpit, a preacher asking the congregation, maybe aiming the question at those who, even though they're in church, mightn't be saved yet, and asking them, are you ready? But Paul's message to the Thessalonians is a bit different because he's talking to believers. These people make up a church, and we've been seeing this all through the book, how they came to faith, how they stayed firm in their faith, and instructions on how they can continue to do that. We looked at the backstory together back at the beginning, and and Paul tells about how he longed to go and see the Thessalonians, and he couldn't. He sent Timothy. Timothy brought back a great report. So they're Christians. They're believers who are standing faith, but even so, they're standing firm, but even so, Paul talks about the return of Jesus. And we read it, chapter 5, verse 6, So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert. So what does Paul mean by this? What does it mean for believers to be ready or alert for Christ's return? The Thessalonians seem to have been a bit confused about what that meant, and Marty touched on this last week. The topic of the end and Christ's return comes up in all five chapters in this book. So when Timothy brought his good report about these Christians, he probably said, Paul, these Christians are doing really well, but they're a bit confused when it comes to death and the end. It seems to have been worrying them. They thought that Jesus was going to return almost immediately, but then they were seeing some of their brothers and sisters dying, and they thought, oh no, this is awful because we know that Jesus is coming back for us, but what about these people who've died? They're going to miss out. And so Paul says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about this. And that little phrase, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant, it's found three times in Paul's writing here and in Romans 1 and in 1 Corinthians. And it's always used when Paul is about to correct something. He's going to set the Thessalonians straight about this because Christians, whether alive or dead, are ready for the coming of Jesus. And so for us this morning, the message is the same. We can be ready for the coming of the Lord, and there are a number of reasons for that. Firstly, we can be ready for the coming of the Lord because we have hope whether we live or die. Look with me again at uh, chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. He says, brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. Now those words in chapter four, verse thirteen, have caused many, many believers a lot of trouble because Paul says we're not to grieve like everybody else. We're not to grieve like the rest of men. And so sometimes Christians find themselves thinking, Well, I'm really sad because this person in my family has died, and but the Bible says I'm not meant to be sad. What's that all about? Well, the key principle here is for us to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So let's stay with Paul. In Philippians, we're told that Paul's friend, Epaphroditus, nearly died. And Paul says, indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. So this Paul who's saying we shouldn't grieve like everybody else says that if his friend Epaphroditus had died, he would have been really sad about it. And in fact, sticking with Philippians, he says that dying is better by far. Paul says, what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. So Paul says dying's far better and yet he would also have been sad if his friend had died. So how can the two be true? We also see Jesus at the, at the tomb of Lazarus. He cries. And as he faces death, he says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. And then a few chapters later, we read that he becomes greatly troubled in the garden of Gethsemane. And understandably so, because he was facing death. So how do we make sense of these things which seem to contradict one another? How do we understand that our faith is meant to lead us not to grieve like others when Paul and even Jesus himself clearly faced grief? Well, the first thing needs to be said is that if you're a Christian and if you grieve, that's normal, that's good, that's okay. And if anybody ever tells you to cheer up or that you'll be okay because of your faith or or that you should be happier because of your faith, don't listen to them. It's nonsense. In fact, it could probably be said that we grieve more because we know it's not meant to be like this. We know that we're meant to live forever with Jesus, and death flies in the face of that. Sometimes other people, non-believers, can actually accept it better because they don't believe there is anything more anyway but it's worse for us because we know we were created to enjoy life with God. It's how it was before the fall in Genesis. We were created to enjoy life with God, and it's how it is now that we're saved. We're saved to enjoy life eternal with God, and death is an affront to that. Death is the very opposite of the new life that's in us. And I actually think that's why Jesus cried in John 11 at the tomb of Lazarus. I don't think he was grieving for Lazarus because he knew that he was about to call him out of the tomb, so that wouldn't make any sense. He wasn't crying because he thought he'd lost Lazarus. He knew he hadn't, but he was crying because he was confronted with death, and he was the Son of God who knew fullness of life himself, and death is the antithesis of that, so he wept in the face of it. So it's okay for Christians to weep in the face of death. There would be something wrong with us if we didn't. But because of our hope of eternal life, we probably actually feel it even more strongly. But at the same time, we face it with that hope. That's what Paul says, isn't it? He doesn't want us to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Recently, um, we changed our car It was very old and rusty and so on, and we actually bought my mum's car. It's not a very fancy car. Um, But Justine was just saying to me the other day that she'd never really noticed that type of car before. Didn't think there were many of them about, until we got one, and now suddenly she's seeing them everywhere. I'm not sure if you've ever had that experience, something you've never noticed before, and then suddenly, when somebody points it out to you, you see it absolutely everywhere. And the word hope is like that in the New Testament, or at least it has been for me, especially in these letters. It's absolutely everywhere. We read about it in the start of our service at first Peter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. So we grieve, but not like everybody else. In some ways, actually more deeply than others because we know the hope that we have and death flies in the face of it. But at the same time, we also have hope and we do face it with courage. I love the way um, the old hymn puts it, Lo, Jesus meets us, risen from the tomb. Lovingly he greets us, scatters fear and gloom. Let the church with gladness hymns of triumph sing, for her Lord now liveth death has lost its sting. Jesus scatters our fear and gloom. We still feel it. We still feel the grief, but also in the face of it, we have great hope. A little later in this letter in chapter 5 and verse 10 that we read, Paul says that he died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. So our grief is different because we have hope. It's okay to be sad, but we also have hope alongside our sadness. So we can be ready for the coming of the Lord because we have hope whether we live or we die. But secondly, we can be ready because we know what the future holds, or at least we know enough about it. Again, chapter 4, verse 14, look with me. He says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul is correcting them here. They thought that, well, they were okay because they were still alive, but their brothers and sisters who died, they were lost. No, Paul says, we have no advantage. We won't precede them because they will rise too. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Paul is taking us right back to the teachings of Jesus, and you can read them in Matthew 24. We're not going to um, go through it just now, but there are massive parallels here between what Jesus says. In fact, verse 15, Paul says, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you. So he's reiterating what Jesus has already said. What Paul is describing here is the arrival of a king. This language is maybe a bit foreign to us, but it would have been really familiar to the Thessalonians because this is what happened when the emperor was coming. Obviously, they wouldn't come from the sky, but they'd come from a distance and everybody would run out to join them and gather around them in a big crowd, and then they'd come together into the city. And that's what's being described here. The Lord comes from the sky, the dead in Christ are raised, and those who are alive go up with Him into the sky and then descend with Him for the final judgment. Now some of those things like the the voice of the Lord and the, the trumpet and the archangel, well that's all pulling on images from Isaiah 27 of the Lord's trumpet sounding and the people being gathered And because it's prophetic language, there's a lot of um, debate about how literal it is and so on, and the the sun turning dark and the stars falling. And I think we have to be honest about it and we have to say it's a prophetic image which is describing something we can't ever fully understand. We don't know exactly what it all represents, but we know enough. The Lord has revealed to us in his word all that we need to know. In some ways, the debates about how literal it is, don't matter because we know enough. It's a bit like me making a call on my phone. Now, I know that if I have signal and if I punch in the right number, the phone call will be made and it'll go to the right place. Now, I know nothing about how this actually works. I know nothing about how the touch screen recognizes when I touch it and when I don't. I have an idea that a signal goes up somewhere in the sky to a satellite and gets pinged to the other person's phone but I've no idea really how that happens. Even the phone, all the microchips and the battery and the speakers and the screen, and I, I know what they're all for, but I've no idea how they actually work. Presumably there are people in the world who are experts in this kind of thing and, and who do know how those works, but I'm not, and I don't need to be actually. I'm just content that there are people who do know enough about it so I can use it to call people. And That's kind of how it is with the end of the world to a certain extent. We are told what will happen, but we're not told all the details of how, and there are undoubtedly things which are beyond our ability to understand, but there is an expert who's got it all under control, and he's told us that it will happen so that we can be ready for the end. Jesus is coming back. If we die first, we get to go and be with him. And if we don't, we meet him in the air. We won't precede those who die first. We'll be together with the Lord. Now, there are some people, and I do just want to mention this, who misinterpret this um, passage of Scripture. Um, The event that Paul is talking about is called the rapture, and that's fair enough. Um, And what that means is that we're taken up to be with Christ but some people think that this is like a secret rapture, that people are just going to vanish, and those who are left are kind of looking around, wondering where everybody is. And um, It's pulling on uh, imagery from here and from Matthew 24, where Jesus says there will be two in a field working beside each other, and one will be taken and the other left behind. But Scripture doesn't support this idea of a secret rapture. There will be a rapture. We will be taken up. But clearly, it's going to be a loud public event, the trumpet sound of the angel, the voice of the Lord. God's people will be gathered. Jesus says it's the angels who will gather us all, and Paul says that we'll be caught up in the air. But this will be immediately followed by judgment. You won't have people running around wondering where all the Christians have gone. So we're called to be ready for the coming of the Lord. We can be ready because we have hope and because we do know what's coming. But we're also challenged and encouraged to be ready because We don't know when it's going to happen. At the start of uh, chapter five, Paul says this. He says, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. One of the reasons we need to be ready is because, like many of those things in life, we just don't know when it's going to happen. And again, Paul is, all he's doing here is he's pointing them back to Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus says it will just be like in the days of Noah, when people were getting on with their lives and the flood came and they weren't prepared for it. Jesus says that we won't know the time or date, and Paul says the same. Now, Paul isn't saying that we need to just stand around kind of looking up into the sky, waiting to see Jesus return. Now, there may be occasions when we see things that the Bible describes as signs of the end, but these things have been happening for 2,000 years. Paul says in verse 2 that Jesus coming will be like a thief coming in the night. The message puts that verse like this. It says, You know as well as I that the day of the Master's coming can't be posted on our calendars. He won't call ahead and make an appointment any more than a burglar would. It does the church's cause no good when somebody whips up a lot of hype about the end of the world coming on Thursday or whenever, and it puts people off. Again, Marty touched on that last week. It it hurts people. Jesus said that the Father's the only one who knows the times and dates, so how could we think that we could work them out? It will happen like a thief coming in the night. So we can be ready for the Lord's coming because we have hope and because we know what's coming, but there's an urgency about our need to be ready because we don't know when it's going to happen. So I suppose as we finish up, the most obvious question to ask is, well then, how? You know, we know we can look to the future with this confidence. We know what's going to happen, even if we don't know when. But Paul stresses the idea of being ready. So how do we do it? Well, firstly, in order to be ready, we need to know that we have this confidence. In chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet we need to be sure that we have faith, hope, and love. In other words, we need to trust Jesus as our Savior. We need to know His love and put our faith in Him and receive this hope of salvation. Paul uses several metaphors through chapter 5. He says non-believers are asleep, believers are awake. He also talks about being drunk or sober or belonging to the night or the day. Whatever metaphor you want to use, the point it's not just a statement of the obvious, it's an exhortation for us to make sure that we're not asleep, drunk or in the dark, or whichever description you want to use. The old saying is that there's only two things for certain in life: death and taxes. That's not true because some people evade taxes, but none of us get to evade death, whether it's through physical death or whether it's through the Lord's return. We all have a date with eternity. And the time to act is now, and it's urgent because we don't know the day or the hour. Can I encourage you this morning in strong terms, if you've never done it before, put your hope in Jesus today. Hopefully you see week by week as we open up the Bible together that living for Jesus in all its fullness is life in all its fullness. But it is only that if we reach out to him in faith. Death is an affront to every one of us because it's not what we're created for. But unless we deal with the problem, unless we confess our sins and turn from them, trusting in Jesus to forgive us and rescue us from the consequence of our sin, then when He returns, we face judgment and the reality of hell. But the gospel offers us something so much better, By putting our faith in Christ and receiving his gift of love, enjoying the hope of salvation, it lets us live our lives in a way that's ready for whatever comes, ready for the very worst that life can throw at us. We'll still grieve. We'll still face the reality of death until that day. But we have this great hope. Paul says we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. He died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, alive or dead, we may live together with him. And there's nothing more encouraging than that. I think it's really interesting that as we face these big questions of life and death and how we face them with hope, Paul tells us to encourage one another. At the end of chapter 4, he says, so we'll be with the Lord forever, therefore encourage one another with these words. And at the end of our reading today, in chapter 5, verses 10 and 11, he says, He died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you're doing. So as we walk this journey of life together as the family of God, as a church family, we will walk through hard days together. Days when we lose loved ones. Days when saints who have worshipped and served faithfully in this place over many years will go on ahead of us to glory. Even harder days when tragedy strikes, when death seems to occur much too early, where sickness and injury hurt us and the people we love. So let's always walk alongside one another. Think of just one person in the church family who you could phone this week and encourage them to Send them a card, go and see them, whatever, and encourage them. Let them know that it's okay that they grieve, but that they can grieve not like everybody else, but they grieve with hope because in Christ we're ready. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful today for the hope that you've given us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we acknowledge him as our only hope, Jesus Christ, the hope of the world. And we praise you that in his death, the justice of God was satisfied, that forgiveness of sin is proclaimed. We praise you that in his resurrection, death was defeated and new life has come. And so we praise you for the hope we have in the world to come, Christ the judge, fully dealing with all unrighteousness and blessing of the new creation. But we also praise you for the hope that we have today in this world the encouragement that we can draw even in hard days, because you're with us by your Spirit, uniting us together and equipping us to face that hardship with hope and encouragement. And so as we come in a moment to your table, may we be pointed to your work in saving us, may we be encouraged as we live for you, and may we be filled with hope as we look to his glorious return in his name. Amen.